The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back a guest that was on our program years ago doing incredible work as executive director of Fair Play for Kids. Josh Golan is the executive director. He started at Fair Play when it was the campaign for a commercial-free childhood as an intern in 2003. He's been with the organization ever since, and most recently, he was an associate director organizing campaigns and developing communication strategy. What our listeners need to know is that Fair Play is the leading nonprofit organization that is committed to helping children thrive in an increasingly commercialized, screen-obsessed culture and it is the only organization dedicated to ending marketing to children. Fair Play is a truly independent voice for kids, as it does not accept donations from big tech or any corporation. I am familiar with Fair Play's advocacy. It is grounded in the overwhelming evidence that child-targeted marketing and the excessive screen time it encourages undermines kids' healthy development. Fair Play works closely with policymakers, health and child development experts, and their nearly 40,000 members nationwide to bring life to a new vision of childhood, one that is shaped by what's best for kids, not what's best for profits. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Melinda. It's great to be back. Well, a lot has happened since our last conversation, and I think mostly when I'm concerned about screen time, I'm concerned about the quality of food that is advertised to children. I'm concerned about girls' and boys' body images, too. But recently, there has been an increasingly growing concern about kids' interactions with screens, and I want to dive into that more with you. But first, why don't you tell me, what was it about the Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood that attracted you all those many years ago? Well... When I was in my 20s, I worked at Miramax Films for a few years. And while I was there, we had a film called Spy Kids. And in Spy Kids, Miramax cut a big deal with McDonald's. And so many of the scenes in the film took place in McDonald's. And I was like appalled. And I said to people, I said, isn't anybody concerned that we're using our quote-unquote art to sell the worst food to kids? Isn't it enough to get the $10 from the families for a ticket? Why do we need to do this? And everybody looked at me like I had 10 heads. And so I was, I realized that I shouldn't be at Miramax. And I realized that there was something going on here that I was really concerned about how kids were targeted with marketing, not just for junk food, but for all sorts of things and how that shaped their identities, their values and their behaviors. And so I happened to go back to school to get a child development degree. And and while I was studying there, this was something that I felt like wasn't being taught in my classes. There was so much, such an incredible influence in children's lives. You know, companies were spending $15 billion a year to influence children and we weren't talking about it. 
So I happened to read an article about this crazy psychologist named Susan Lynn who was leading protests outside of conventions where they were celebrating marketing to kids, where people came to learn how do you market better to kids. And, and this psychologist was protesting, and I was like, oh, my God, I found my people, and I want to intern there. And so I called Susan, and she offered me an internship, and I've been there ever since. But what, what, what drew me was this idea that the influences in children's life should be those institutions and people that care about children and want the best for them. And, and meanwhile, we have all of these industries that only see children for a way to make money, and that's having such a profound impact for them. So when I found that there was something called the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood that existed, I was like, sign me up. Yeah. Well, what's so interesting to me is that when you were at Miramax, you were the only one that saw this disconnect. What do you think was behind that? Why were you the only one who saw that? I think because businesses aren't charged with looking out for kids. Like they saw, wow, this is a new revenue stream. This means bigger holiday bonuses for all of us. This means this means more money for the company, and that's why we're here. So why is this pipsqueak concerned about the well-being of children? It's up to parents to raise children. We're here to make money. And what I said was, no, companies need to have some responsibility here too. And at a certain point, especially – this is a movie that would have made a lot of money even if they didn't partner with McDonald's, right? So it was just pure greed. But yeah, I think when you're in that mindset, it almost sounds like a foreign language when somebody says, well, what about the well-being of children? Because that's just not what the culture trains you to think about when you work for a company like that. Right. I discovered the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood when I was doing media literacy work around preventing childhood obesity. And like you, I was appalled that McDonald's was going into schools or Pizza Hut was going to schools with, you know, reading coupons or kind of getting kids to go to their businesses, spend their money and get food that we know and increasingly know is not good for children's health. We know now that what children eat as children affect their likelihood of getting chronic diseases for the rest of their lives. So I was so happy to find Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. Why the name change to Fair Play? Well, I think the reason for the name change is when people were hearing the name commercial free childhood, they would say things like, oh, what do you want everybody to move to the woods? Or what does that mean? You cover up a child's eyes when you pass a billboard? And I think people saw it as such an impossibility and so far off that they didn't understand the, the really important work that we were doing in the present. And here we are, we're a watchdog, and we forced major changes at YouTube a couple of years ago, and we stopped Mattel from introducing a device that was going to spy on babies. And, you know, we've done all of these things that in the present are making families' lives better. But I think with that name, people thought, oh, we're just aiming for some far-off, maybe impossible future. And so we didn't want to scare anybody off. We wanted to let people know that what we're advocating for is perfectly reasonable. It's about fairness. It's about letting kids be kids. And I don't think we've really changed who we are or what we do, but maybe we can reach more people this way. And, and it was really about trying to break down those barriers that would lead to resistance to people even wanting to hear about what we do. Because usually when people hear about what we do, they're like, oh, thank God you exist. Right. Well, how did you come up with the name Fair Play? I think it's brilliant, by the way. <laughs> 
thank you. We believe it or not, we work with a branding consultant who who and we did a lot of exercises to try and figure out who we were and what we stand for and that just seemed to fit together so well because first of all we believe in promoting play for children. It's you know, the most important thing can children can do is is play and, and we believe in fairness and what's happening right now is that children are treated so unfairly by tech companies and marketers and, and if we had fairness we would have a world in which kids grew up a lot healthier and happier. Oh, absolutely. And especially during this time of COVID, where there's been so much more time that kids have spent behind screens, I think you are needed more than ever. And before we go any farther, I just want to let our listeners know that if they want to go to the website, because I don't want to miss this, it's fairplayforkids.org spelled out. I'll provide that in the show notes also. So let's talk about some recent campaigns where you've had some big wins. And you mentioned those briefly earlier. The Hello Barbie. You had a campaign, Hell No Barbie. What was the problem with Mattel's Hello Barbie? Yeah, so Hello Barbie was a doll that would talk back to kids. And so what it did was um, it was connected to the Internet, and children would talk to it, and what they said would be stored on a, a cloud server and, you know, it would it would record what their interests and other things that they had said, and then so the doll could talk back to them and have a conversation. And we were incredibly concerned because, first of all, if you know anything about child development, it's actually better when the doll does less than when it does more. So while it may seem really cool that a doll could remember something about a kid and, and carry on a conversation that way, actually the really great play happens when a kid is, is playing both their part and the doll's part and they're using their imagination. But beyond that, there were all of these privacy concerns about employees from Mattel and the, their third-party processor could listen to these conversations. And then there was the fact that they were building profiles of kids based on what they said to this doll so that the doll could market back to the kids. So, you know, somebody could say, oh, the, to tell the doll that they were really interested in soccer. And Barbie could say, well, have you seen my, my new soccer Barbie? Or have you seen this new pr- product that's coming out? And that just seemed uh, completely horrifying to commercialize children's play in that way and to use all this information, not to mention when you think about Barbie and the way that that kids play with Barbies, they tend to act out things that maybe they're trying to learn about bodies or things like that. And to have that kind of really private play be eavesdropped on by a corporation just seems like completely crossing the line. So we organized a big campaign against it, our Hell No Barbie campaign. We got so much press on it. And every time people wrote about the doll, they would refer to it as creepy, which was really great. And it ended up just killing the sales for the doll. It was supposed to be one of the biggest toys of that year uh, at the holiday season, you know, predicted to sell like 200 to 250,000 units, and it only sold 10,000. I mean, we think we had a lot to do with it. So yes, and that was kind of a really transformational moment for our organization, because up until that point, we had been more focused on older methods of marketing to children, like television commercials and brand licensing, things that we're still very concerned about. But that was a move. We started really focusing much more on the newer technologies and the newer ways which kids are marketed to, like using their data to personalize marketing, because that is even, you know, all marketing to kids is terrible, but it's even more insidious when you use a kid's data against them in order to find their vulnerabilities. Oh, absolutely. And with new artificial intelligence, this becomes easier for corporations to do. You also had a campaign against Aristotle, the baby monitor that was always on. Yeah, so Aristotle was a device that Mattel was going to release, and it was like an Amazon Alexa for babies and preschool kids. 
And the idea was that babies would become attached to this device because it would do things like read stories to babies. It would, if a baby cried, it was supposed to be able to recognize their cry and play a light show so that parents wouldn't have to get up in the middle of the night. It was basically designed to replace parents so that the baby would become attached to it and would talk to it all the time and it would gather all of this information about the baby and then and a preschool child and use that information to create a profile so that the the kid child could be marketed to and we thought that this was was terrible both from a privacy standpoint and a marketing standpoint but also from a developmental standpoint like you should not be outsourcing the decision of whether to uh, go in and comfort a baby when they're crying in the middle of the night to a machine. That's an immensely personal and personalized decision and not one that an algorithm is capable of making. And so we launched a big campaign around it. We got all these leaders in, in child development to speak out against it. We got some support from Capitol Hill, from people like Senator Markey. And, and eventually we put so much pressure on Mattel that they decided not to release it because they understood that if they did release it, they maybe would make some money off the short-term sales, but it was really going to hurt their brand long-term. And that's the way we do a lot of our campaigns is really trying to put that pressure and make people understand that there will be a cost to exploiting kids because you really need to change their calculus. Social media has been so instrumental in getting your messages out, and I'm so glad that that's available to us to try to protect children. That Really what we're doing is we're protecting their innocence, and anyone that would try to rob that, it seems like such an evil thing to do. I mean, that's separate from the public health components that I've been so focused on, just the idea that you would see a child as a moneymaker rather than our future on the planet and a person who might be doing good for humanity, I think that's really the shame of all of this. And you have recently been interviewed on CNN and the Today Show about some recent developments with the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen. And I was really interested in your response to that. Let's talk about what Francis found, and how you responded with regard to the protection of children. Yeah. So Francis Haugen was a Facebook employee who, before she left, took a whole bunch of documents from Facebook that exposed really troubling things going on within the company and shared those with the Wall Street Journal. And as your listeners probably know, because this has turned into one of the biggest stories of the year, and some of those documents pertain to Facebook's treatment of children and teens. And I think the, probably the most shocking documents were researchers within Facebook did research and brought their research to the highest levels of the company that showed that teens themselves were saying that Instagram was harmful to them in a number of ways. So, for instance, one out of three people, teens with an eating disorder, said that being on Instagram made their eating disorder much worse. Six percent of teens in the U.S. and 13 percent of teens in the U.K. traced their first suicidal thoughts to Instagram. I mean, really just horrible and, and concerning stuff. And Facebook received these presentations, and they buried them. They did nothing about them. And worse than doing nothing about them, at the same time they were burying their own internal research, they were putting out public statements questioning academic research that found that Instagram was harming teenagers and saying, oh, the jury's still out, and social media can be a very positive experience for teens. And so really taking a play right out of uh, Big Tobacco's playbook of burying your own research and casting doubt on academic research 
And so Francis Haugen leaked these documents, and people were rightly outraged, and Congress has been rightly outraged. And I think it's really created this moment where people are questioning the whole business model of social media and what it does to children. And I think that that's really the key here. Facebook's crimes are horrifying, and they should be held accountable for ignoring their own research and for burying it. But I think the bigger thing is that the business model of social media, which revolves around trying to get children to be online as much as possible and serving them the content that will keep them online as much as possible, regardless of whether that is content that might be good for them or content that might be promoting eating disorders or even suicide, the algorithms on Instagram don't care. The only thing they care about is whether this content is likely to keep a user on longer. And that's terrible for so many reasons. It's terrible because kids, if they're using social media, should be using it in limited ways, and we don't want them on it all the time. But it's also terrible because they're being exposed to all this harmful content. And I think Frances Haugen, she talked a little bit about this on 60 Minutes, but I think it's just heartbreaking. She talked about how kids with eating disorders are more likely to go on Instagram, when they're feeling bad about themselves and when they're engaging in their eating disordered behaviors, and then they get hit with messages that reinforce their eating disorder. And so it's just this cycle. And when you think about, you know, and I think back to my own adolescence, when we think about just how adolescence is a really, really hard time, and there's a lot of changes going on and a lot of insecurity and a lot of anxiety, even without social media, and to have these platforms that are making adolescents so much worse for so many kids and not caring about that. It's just both heartbreaking and infuriating. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Josh, let me take one break because we're just past the halfway mark and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Josh Golan. He is the executive director of Fair Play, which is the leading nonprofit organization committed to helping children thrive in an increasingly commercialized, screen-obsessed culture, and it's the only organization dedicated to ending marketing to children. So I want to talk about Instagram for a moment because – so this is a platform, if our listeners don't know it, where you're basically posting images – and I was glad that you mentioned, you know, you recalled your own adolescence. And I, of course, thought back to my own. And I'm sure it's different for males and females. But for children who are outliers, who are a little bit different, who don't fit the perfect model, it can be really devastating to have negative comments posted or even whispered about you behind your back, let alone shouted out to who knows how many thousands of people via these platforms, but you got involved, you stopped Instagram for kids, or your organization played a key role in stopping Instagram for kids. What was Facebook thinking? Well, that is just, I mean, that's just the most incredible part of this whole story is as this research that Francis Haugen exposed is being presented to senior leadership at Facebook, not only are they burying their own research and not doing anything to change their platform to make it less harmful to teens, but at the same time, they're thinking, well, how can we extend Instagram and ensnare even younger users? And, and they just, it was leaked in March that Instagram was planning a kid's version of Instagram for, you know, you're supposed to be 13 in order to get on Instagram. And so they were planning to build a version targeting younger kids. And when we heard this, it just 
the jaws just hit. The, you know, it takes a lot to shock me these days, but this was just shocking. And our plates were already incredibly full. We have a small team here, and we're trying to make change at a pretty big scale. But we said, you know what? We absolutely need to do something about Instagram for kids. And frankly, if we didn't organize a response, probably nobody would. So within a couple of weeks of that news breaking about Facebook's plans, we had sent a letter to Facebook signed by over 100 experts in child development saying, don't do it. Here's why. Younger children are even less equipped than teenagers to deal with the pressures on Instagram. This is a site that essentially involves taking a picture of yourself, uploading it, and then having people rate you on how you look in that picture. That's essentially what's happening through likes and comments is people are rating how you look in a picture. And who would possibly think that that's a good activity for an eight-year-old to engage in? Who would think that when as adults we spend far too much of our time fighting with other people on social media, that eight-year-olds would be able to navigate relationships on social media or understand the privacy implications of what they're posting and who can see it and creating a permanent record of everything they do and say and post. I mean, it's just absurd to think that when teens are struggling so much with Instagram that younger kids would somehow be able to deal with it. So we laid out all these reasons. We got a ton of press around it. And when, you know, one of the things that was really nice about this campaign is once we spoke out, once we started organizing a response, we started to see all these other people join in the campaign. So we got a letter from Capitol Hill, from Senator Markey and Senator Blumenthal and some members of the House of Representatives saying, Facebook, don't do this. Forty-four state attorneys general wrote to Facebook and said, do not release Instagram for kids. We partnered with other organizations and did petition drives and got about 250,000 signatures of people writing to Facebook saying, don't do this. And then when Francis Haugen testified and there was so much pressure on Facebook, they announced that, I do want to be clear, they haven't canceled it permanently. They said that they were putting it on pause, and so we've got to finish the job now and get them to cancel it. But they did say that they were pausing. They did blink, which is something that Facebook doesn't do often. And there's no doubt about it that Francis Haugen's testimony was what tipped it over the edge, but I truly believe that we created the space for this to happen by starting this campaign. And sometimes that's what it takes. It takes somebody to speak up and have a principled stand and to organize and bring those other voices in in order to make change. And I like to think that's what we do pretty well. But we're not done. We absolutely are going to keep this campaign up until they 100% say they're not going to release Instagram for kids. Because first of all, it's just a terrible and harmful idea. But second of all, there has to be limits. Like, if there's an Instagram for kids, what's going to stop there from being a TikTok for four-year-olds and a Snapchat for two-year-olds? There has to be lines somewhere. It just keeps getting younger and younger and worse and worse. And so we really see this as like a watershed moment of where people coming together, regulators coming together, are saying no to Facebook so loudly that they have to listen. Yeah. You know, Josh, you said something earlier that I wanted to get back to, and that was typically whenever people like you and me raise an issue and say there needs to be some sort of policy or government oversight. You've always got the folks in the corner of the room who are looking at kids as profit generators saying, well, where are the parents? It's up to the parents to make these decisions. You know, we're just giving kids choice. And of course, that just makes my hair stand on end (laughs) because I've been a parent of young children and I know when you're tired from working Maybe you're stressed out about this, that, or the other. Of course, COVID has made our stress levels all go up. 
But when parents are stressed, we are more vulnerable to kids pestering, right? And there are whole campaigns about how marketers get kids to be really good pesterers. What do you say to people who are like, you're a parent, you could just say no? Well, I think, and I certainly have heard those voices with you, Melinda, loud and clear over the years. I think one of the nice things about this moment is we're actually getting a lot less of that. I think so many parents have gone through this, and I think the pandemic really helped parents understand that it is a very rare parent, and it's only a parent that has tons of free time and tons of resources and probably tons of money that has the ability to do the types of monitoring that it takes to keep your child safe online and, and, and protected. I mean, it's essentially a full-time job, and, and most of us have other jobs that we have to work as well, so, so few of us are, are able to do this full-time. So I will say, I think that that piece of it is getting a little better. But in terms of how you respond to that, first of all, most parents don't have the time to do that, and it's unfair to expect them to have the time to do that. But second of all, these companies are deliberately trying to make parenting harder. So one of the things about the way all of this tech that kids are engaging works is that they use manipulative design in order to keep kids on their screen longer, in order to make it seem like that is the place that they have to be. And then when you factor in developmentally that children, particularly as they start reaching adolescence, they want to be where their peers are, it's one thing to keep a child off of social media if, and to say no if all of their peers are not on social media, but it's a much harder thing to say if all of their peers are on social media. And the choice that you're asking a parent to make is, do I submit my child to the harms of social media or do I submit my child to the harms of being isolated to their peers? So it's very clear that this cannot be solved on an individual level, that we need community solutions, we need policy solutions, we need societal solutions. And I think one of the things that I'm so optimistic about is that it really does feel like we're starting to move away, at least around this issue of tech and social media, away from parents pointing fingers at other parents, and all of parents realizing, or not all, but most parents realizing, this is so damn hard and we need help. We need help to lower level the playing field against these companies that have created the most powerful technologies that have ever existed and are using them to manipulate our children in ways we don't like. Exactly. And I know that you have a 12-year-old daughter. You are living through this right now. And in one of the interviews, you mentioned just that, the power of creating a community of caring parents so that a child is given a safe place to be a child. Yeah, I think that that's so important. And it's difficult. It's, it's difficult. I know some parents are very hesitant to talk about these issues with other parents because they feel like it's so personal and like other parents will feel like they're judging them. But I think particularly when children are young, before they get phones, before they get their first social media accounts, to talk to other parents to say, what are you thinking about this stuff? Can we come to some kind of community agreements about when we might get our kids phones or when we might let them on social media? My daughter's in seventh grade right now. Certainly some of her friends have phones. Certainly some of them are on social media. But it's not the dominant culture. And that's because we've had these conversations over the years, and we found out that if we talk this out, actually a lot of us share the same values. So if my daughter came to me and said, I'm the only kid in class that's not on TikTok, I would be able to say, no, actually, I know for a fact that these other kids aren't on TikTok. And so it makes it so much easier. 
and it makes it easier for her. She's fine with not being on TikTok because that's not where the kid culture lives for her seventh grade class. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is so important about this stuff. Kids really, really, really want to be where their peers are. And so if we can create different alternative cultures for them, it's so much easier. But it does take work. Yeah, Josh, unfortunately, our time is up. I knew it would fly. But I want to let our listeners know that we have been speaking with Josh Golan, Executive Director of Fair Play. The website is fairplayforkids.org. There are fabulous, the library of resources that you have is terrific. There are little webinars that we can watch, short webinars on things like cyberbullying and what do kids really need. Exposure to green time, for example, more time outside with playing. We know that around the holidays, parents and other loved ones are looking for what should we get our kids. First and foremost, go to fairplayforkids.org and find the answers. Josh, thank you so much for being my guest. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Josh Golan. Thank you so much for all of your work. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.